0: Welcome to the Monroe Church of Christ podcast. I'm Derek Glover, preacher of the Monroe Church of Christ in Monroe, Wisconsin, and I want to thank you for joining us. I hope that you'll subscribe to our podcast, leave a comment or review on iTunes, and share it with a friend, family member, co-worker, or someone that you think would be interested to know more about our Savior, Jesus Christ. I love that last song. About the ancient words. We've been examining some of those ancient words and we've been looking at our own history in the last several weeks as we have been discussing in a series kind of format about who we are and what makes us different. And several weeks ago we started very broadly discussing how we are called to not be conformed. So what does that mean? Well we looked at the Christian faith and how it stands out in history amongst the religious world, and we talked about our own uh, faith tradition, the Churches of Christ, and how we are different than uh, than a lot of, of the faith community we find ourselves in, and we've tried to focus on some of the key elements of that, not in a way to compare ourselves as being better or by having something figured out that the others don't, but more in celebrating some unique qualities that we have and that make us Uh, that make us unique, and the special reasons why they make us unique. And part of that involves us understanding our history. And we've talked a lot about the history of not only the church as we see it in Scripture, but of our particular movement, the restoration movement from the early 1800s through the early 1900s, and really in some ways still ongoing. We've talked about how we got to where we are and where we may need to go from here But we have to understand our history to do that. So last week, uh, two weeks ago, we talked about our autonomy, how we don't have uh, a connection uh, in in terms of governance to other uh, congregations. Last week, we talked about baptism and why that's a special part of who we are. And this week, we're going to discuss something very special that we do when we gather around the table to share in the Lord's Supper, to share in Communion we're a bit unique in this regard and again all these things we're talking about we want to celebrate why they make us unique we want to reinforce why they're important to us and we want to hold fast to them in that importance not merely as something we've always done not merely because we think it's the only way to do it but because we think and our history shows us that those who came before us thought they were important for us spiritually And we need to understand, more importantly, the spiritual implications of what we do than simply the denominational implications of what we do. And we want to be preaching Jesus Christ, not the Church of Christ. And that's what we want to strive after. And in order to do that, we have to learn these things. And I think it makes us better equipped to teach that because there may be others who are struggling in their faith that we can say, look, here's how we do this. And maybe that's something they need. I think we all have something to offer the world, and this is something that we have to offer. Well, we start where we often do, looking back at history. Uh, We are pretty clear on the history of the origins of this tradition. We'll we'll talk about that in a little bit, about Jesus and and his disciples. But in terms of church history, uh, the partaking of communion, the Lord's Supper, has evolved in so many ways, and it's been done in so many different ways some good and some bad. And Protestantism was a very important uh, factor. The, the The emergence of Protestantism was a very important factor in kind of restoring the place of communion in the, uh, the practice of, of people's faith, in the church setting, in the congregational setting. Protestantism really restored its place, the communion's place in our practice, at least in terms of of um, it being something more accessible. Uh, Communion uh, has often been used and often become a test of fellowship. And I don't mean that in terms of we do it different than you and therefore we can't be brethren. No, I mean in terms of excluding. It's been done that way in the Catholic Church, and and that's the path that they've chosen to take. But it was also done then later on in other Protestant faiths. You see, there are so many things, and this is the trend of history that we want to try to avoid. So many movements have started in an effort to try and correct something or get away from something, and very shortly thereafter, they get right back to it. Because the thing that was wrong is not always something that's a problem with an institution. Oftentimes, it's what's a problem with our heart. So, Protestantism sought to restore communion not as something that was given only to certain people to exclude people or that was handed down from a priest in order to demonstrate that this person was in good standing. No, they wanted to restore it into its proper place, and they did for a time, but it was lost again. It began to be something that was closed off, something that was closed off to those who were outside of their denominational body. And this is where we find our good friend Alexander Campbell. This is where we find our, our uh, Presbyterian minister, Alexander Campbell. This is where we find him struggling with the idea of closing communion. It's an interesting journey that Thomas and Alexander Campbell went on. Thomas Campbell left uh, and from Ireland as a Presbyterian minister and came to the United States, ended up in Pennsylvania, and he started having some questions, started having some thoughts started struggling with the idea that he was a part of this group, this body, that in so many ways turned its back on the biblical concept of unity. And he wrestled with it for a lot of reasons. I mean, it's hard to start digging deep into what you believe and challenging things that you feel secure in, places where you feel safe. But Thomas did that, and he wrote his Declaration and Address, and in part he did that to inform his own son, Alexander, Because he knew Alexander looked up to him, and he loved his son Alexander, and he was afraid that one day they would come over to the States to join him, and he would have to tell Alexander, I've left the Presbyterian Church, I no longer believe what I thought I believed. Meanwhile, Alexander was having a lot of the same thoughts. He uh, attended uh, college, or university as they say over there, in the University of Edinburgh in Scotland. Now, this is a really important academic institution in world history because the Scottish Enlightenment uh, was happening around this time or had happened just prior to Alexander's arrival at university. And people like Adam Smith, who was influential in really the creation of our um, sort of economic structure in our country, this uh, free market, laissez faire kind of uh, idea, Adam Smith was there. At the the College of Edinburgh in Scotland. And he was part of this group of people. And just following after that, one of their contemporaries was Alexander Campbell, this young theological student. And Alexander began asking questions. And he began thinking. And he began reading the scripture. And he began to wrestle himself. Because what if he didn't believe what he thought he believed? And what if he had to tell his dad? So eventually Alexander gets to the States. And they meet, uh, he and Thomas, they see each other and they, they, they have some time together. And in a private moment, Alexander knows it's time to tell him. And Thomas knows it's time to reveal his secret too. And at the same time, they tell each other, I don't think I believe what I thought I believed. And they're both relieved to find that they were walking the same path across an ocean. One of the important moments for Alexander Campbell was communion. This was one of the sparks for the Restoration Movement. As he sat in the pew on a Sunday morning, it was time to partake of the communion. Now, in the Presbyterian Church, only members in good standing could receive communion. And in order to be shown as being in good standing, you were given a token, a little chip, a little token. And he had his token in his hand. And you walked to the front and you displayed your token. And you received communion. Alexander had been wrestling with this idea. He'd been struggling with the idea that partaking in this emblem, in partaking in this ritual, in this tradition, in this sacred moment with the brethren, was excluded from some people on the basis of their standing with the church. And so when it was his time, he walked to the front. He held up his token and he threw it in the plate and he walked out. And he didn't return. Instead, he joined with Barton Stone and many others to build a movement that was geared toward tearing down all of those man-made walls that separated us. And so the practice of open communion began, began to be more prevalent in these restoration churches. But division continued. We've talked before about the history of how We had this movement in the early 1800s, but by the time of the Civil War, so much division occurred, so much tearing apart of our churches and of our brethren occurred, and we found everything in the world to differ over. Now, differing is not a problem, but we found everything in the world to not only differ over, but to divide over, to separate from. If you were to get a book, and there's several different kinds, but there's directories of the uh, denominations of Christianity, just in America. And they number probably in the 1,500 to 2,000 range. I mean different, not just individual congregations, different names, different churches, different divisions. They're recognized as such by our government, the Census Bureau and the IRS. And you can see the things that they differ over. You have those who don't believe you should have a kitchen in a church building. You have those who don't have Sunday schools or Bible classes. You have those who worship with instruments and without instruments. You have those who uh, have women in leadership roles and those who don't. You have those that practice weekly communion or closed communion or uh, quarterly communion. And you have those that, that don't. There's even a division, and this is fairly well known in the churches of Christ, that there was a division at one time over whether we should have one cup or multiple cups. Because if you look at scripture, you know, it, you see that the apostles drank from one cup, right? He passed that around, and they all drank from one cup. So we should drink from one cup if we're trying to get it right. And so that division occurred. That's kind of famous because we kind of, I mean, can you, people do it. And they do it with, with faithfulness in their hearts. And that's fine. That's fine. It's a difficult time to be a one cupper with COVID and all the precautions we have to take. It's a difficult time, but but they still do. Amongst that group, and this this is something I didn't really know until fairly recently, amongst the one cup group, they had another split. They split over whether or not the cup should have a handle on it or not. And you had the pro handle and the anti handle. Now we might laugh at something like that if it weren't so tragic that Christians were fighting with Christians over something so ridiculous. So as much as Alexander Campbell sought to unify Christians, and in part by unifying the communion of Christians in this sacred tradition, we continue to find ways to divide, even today. But when people ask me what, why I am a part of the Churches of Christ, why I am a part of this faith tradition, and what I love most about it, one of the things I point to that's at the top of my list is how we handle the table. Because it's something that we do first of all, on a weekly basis. I love that we do that weekly. There are some that say, well, it loses its meaning, and, and maybe, it's, maybe it's more challenging to make communion mean something to you when it becomes a part of your every day. I know that, I know, but, but I love the spirit behind it, that we look to the example of the early Christians, and we see, though there's some questions, when they met on the first day of the week, and they did this, when they met together, to join in worship on the first day of the week to celebrate the resurrection of Jesus Christ. They, they took part in this, so we will too. I love that spirit. I love that idea. It's a shame that sometimes that idea has been used to draw lines that aren't there, but I love the idea. In fact, if you really wanted to get specific, there's some evidence to suggest that every time the Christians got together, and they did so almost daily, that they also partook in that time as well. So we may not be going far enough, but I do appreciate the spirit that says we want to break bread together. Now bear in mind, and this is an important thing, that in the Semitic culture, and there's a Jewish connection here we'll get to in a minute, but in the Semitic culture, when you sat down to eat with someone, you were accepting them, and you were now responsible for them. You were bonding yourself with another person when you ate together. It's still an important part of their culture today. And and so that was a big part of the early church, which was predominantly Jewish, and how they interacted with one another. The other thing I love about how we do communion is we open it to all. We truly believe in the phrase that we'll read later, that everyone should examine themselves. We're not going to make a determination as a congregation that you can or can't have communion. Each person has to decide that for themselves. It's between you and God. It is a collective moment that we share, but it is also deeply personal and intimate. And I love that. And as I said, it's been, it's been criticized, some as rote or ritualistic or steeped in tradition that loses meaning. And, and I su- suppose that that could be a true criticism. Sometimes we do. But what better reason, therefore, to examine it and to study it this morning and to see where it comes from and what, what we understand we are taking part in. If we look at the origins of the Lord's Supper, we have to go to Scripture and we have to go to the life of Jesus Christ. We find him in Matthew chapter 26. And what is he doing? He's partaking in the Passover tradition with his his apostles. Now, they're good Jewish people, so they're going to take part in Passover. Well, what was Passover? I think the context here is very important. What was Passover? Passover was a meal that the Jewish people partook in in the same way that their forefathers had. They kept this very strict tradition. They were partaking in a meal to do what? To remember something. God was really great at establishing memorials. He would do something and then he would tell them because they didn't have a written word. They didn't have the Bible as we have it. So when when we learn something about scripture, we tell someone book, chapter, verse. When they learn something about God, they had to build something in order to tell people. And so oftentimes God does something for them, tells them something or, or delivers them through something. And he says, um, you need to do something to remind yourselves about this. Remember, they crossed the Jordan River in Joshua chapter chapter four. They draw stones from the bottom of the Jordan River and they build a monument in Gilgal. Why? Because little Jewish boys and girls are going to walk by that one day and they're going to say, what in the world is that for? And you can say, well, that's the time that God did this you take your kids to Washington, D.C., and they see the giant obelisk there at the end of the mall, they might say, what is that? And you say, well, that's to remember George Washington, our first president, a great general who helped us win our freedom in the Revolutionary War. Great. A teachable moment brought to you by a monument. And the Passover was one of those monuments. It was a tradition and a ritual that was meant to recall, to remember, to celebrate, and to share and pass on the story Of what? Of God and the angel of death passing over the faithful Israelites and delivering them from bondage. Now think about this, and remember, I say often that Jesus is between the lines of the Old Testament. That when we look at the Old Testament, what we're seeing is God building a story to help us understand Jesus. Now what could we possibly understand about Jesus in the context of a people who are enslaved and oppressed that God wishes to liberate, and he does so uh, by asking them to demonstrate their faith, okay? We see this context. God's people are enslaved. He chooses to liberate them, and he does it by means of death. There's blood involved, and then there is liberation. Now, think about the connections that that implies when we're looking at Jesus, Because the Israelites were given some instruction. Okay, I've I've done these nine plagues, God says. They've not really uh, gotten Pharaoh where we want him to go. So, we're going to try another. And this is the big one. I'm going to kill the firstborn of every family in Egypt. I'm going to destroy the life of the firstborn of every family. Now, this was what God was intending to do. And he said to the Israelites... If you want to avoid this death, you need to show me that you are one of mine. Now, you might think, well, why didn't God just tell the angel of death to go kill just the Egyptian uh, firstborn and not the Israelite firstborn? Well, it wasn't that the angel of death couldn't understand or was indiscriminate in his death. It was that God was drawing a line and saying, do you want to continue to be enslaved or will you come with me? Those who choose to come with me demonstrate their faith in me, and I will liberate them. Now, that, that seems, that's a very strong echo of what we read in the New Testament about putting our faith in Jesus Christ and being granted freedom from our sin. Paul writes about that in the early part of Romans very clearly. And so here we have God telling the Israelites, okay, here's what you do. Slaughter a lamb, prepare a meal... And take the blood and put it on your doorpost. Now, the imagery now should be popping in your head if you know your Bible. There's blood involved. There is blood that is presented before God as a sign that you will be spared from death. My goodness, Jesus is jumping off the page in Exodus when we read about the Passover. He's he's just coming right out at us because we know that there will come a day from that point where Jesus, the Son of God, will look upon a people who are enslaved by sin, who are lost and helpless because of a law that is not capable of saving them, and he will say, destruction and death are coming because of sin. If you wish to be liberated, you need to demonstrate your faith in me. There will be blood on the doorpost. By the way, the doorpost was a place where announcements were made, When you posted something on the doorpost or you stood in the doorpost and proclaimed something, that was kind of your way of announcing to the world. So when blood is on the doorpost, they are proclaiming this house. This house is protected by God. When the blood of Jesus Christ is a part of our life, when it stands on the doorpost of our heart, we are proclaiming to the world and to God, we are yours, we are his, we are saved. I think the parallels between the Passover scene... And our own salvation are very clear, which makes it even more important when Jesus is standing with his apostles or seated with his apostles eating the Passover meal in Matthew chapter 26, verse 26. When he says, when it says, while they were eating, Jesus took some of the bread and after a blessing, he broke it and gave it to the disciples and said, take, eat, this is my body. And when he had taken the cup and given thanks, he gave it to them saying, drink from it, all of you, for this is my blood of of the covenant. This is my blood of the covenant which is poured out for many for forgiveness of sin. And this is the verse where we get the origins of our Lord's Supper, our communion. And yet it had its origins in the Passover. And what was the Passover? The Passover was an event that occurred which helped in freeing and liberating the Israelites, just as Jesus' death was an event that occurred that, provided for the liberation of our very souls from death because of sin. Two parallel activities, two parallel incidents that occurred. And what followed them, both in the Passover meal, which was a meal to continue the tradition and history and keep the knowledge and understanding of what God had done in the minds of Of the future generations similarly the Lord's Supper the communion when we partake of it is doing the same thing that's what Jesus said I want you to do this when you're together because this will be your history this will be your tradition this will be your teachable moment and when my children sit here and see me taking of these things and they say why do you do that I can tell them because God delivered me from the oppression of sin by the grace and the blood of Jesus Christ. It's our Passover. It's our memorial. It's our story in this tradition. That's the origins. Early Christians partook of this. They also carried on this tradition. After Jesus reframed the Passover, it became a part of what the early Christians did. And it continues to be a part of what we do. Now, the question is, why? Well, I've tried to answer some of that already. But why, in practical terms, do we practice it the way we do? Why do we meet together every week and partake of it? And why is it done in the way it's done? Well, some of it's tradition, sure. Some of it's convenience. I mean, we're doing it differently right now than we have ever. Because typically, we will say a prayer and pass around trays of bread and and trays of little cups of juice. And we've had to get the prepackaged ones because we're trying to be to follow some protocols and be hygienic. And maybe one day we'll go back to the other way. Maybe we won't. I ordered a a, a new box of these prepackaged communion back in December, I think it was. And the box came and it had a note in it. And it said, we're very, very sorry. The company that makes these because all I mean, every church right now is ordering these. And they said, we're very sorry. We're out of red grape juice. We use grape juice. Jesus used wine. The um, Church of Christ tradition also is, uh, uh, has some, some history in prohibition, too, so uh, that's not going to be one of the lessons in this series, but just know we use grape juice, um, but they said we're, we're out of the red grape juice, and I thought, okay, and the inside was a box of white grape juice which frankly pairs better with fish. So it's fine. Uh, but no, I, I never, I didn't really think about it. And then as I, I, I thought, I thought, mm, I've never taken white grape juice as communion. I hope nobody has a problem with that because we get so used to a certain way of doing it that sometimes we can be thrown off and we have to change a little bit. It's not about necessarily the how we do it, though it is important that we are faithful to the example, and it is important that we carry a reverence about how we do it. We don't want to be flippant, but we also don't want to be divisive in how we do things. We've had to change the way we do this a little bit, and over time that's changed. Used to, they used wine. Today we don't use wine, and that's okay. There's some things that change and some things that evolve, Because the why we do it doesn't really have anything to do with those things. The why we do it the way we do it, particularly in the churches of Christ, has a lot to do with community. It has a lot to do with the fact that we're sharing in a moment together. We're having a shared experience. And not only that, we're having that shared experience with all those who are doing it with us on the Lord's Day. I think that's wonderful. When I take communion, I often think about how many Christians there might be in that very moment that are doing the same thing I'm doing, or that day they're doing the same thing I'm doing, all over the world. And it's beautiful, it's wonderful, and it's inspiring to me. We do it to remember, we reinforce a sense of community when we remember together, and that's why we do it on a regular basis. That's why we do it weekly when we meet together, because we want to celebrate with one another. We want to remember, and we want to reinforce community. We also are proclaiming, just as the Israelites proclaimed with the blood on their doorpost, and just as they reinforced that proclamation every time, every year when they had and prepared a Passover meal, we also are taking a Passover meal. And when we do that, we are proclaiming that we believe in Jesus Christ, that we believe in God, the father, and that we've been delivered by the cross of Jesus Christ. We read in Romans chapter six and also in Galatians chapter three, Paul makes a point that we are in some way experiencing this death with Christ, that we are buried with him. We, we die along with him. Something about us dies. Our old way dies. In Galatians, he talks about putting on Christ. We've been, we've been baptized into his death or the benefits of his death. Paul talks a lot about this idea that we join with Christ. We experience some things with Christ in a spiritual sense. And so a part of partaking of this Lord's Supper together, in addition to the community and the memorial and the proclamation is that we are calling ourselves back to that moment of experiencing that death with Jesus. And understanding that though he died a physical death on the cross, but rose to live forever in heaven, we too gave up a life of sin in order to live anew. We're partaking in a portion of what Jesus did. That's why we do it. That's why we do it. Paul also writes in 1 Corinthians chapter 11, a passage that is often quoted during uh, communion time. In most churches, um, well, I say most, but most that I've been a part of, they'll, you gather uh, at the table. It's time for communion, whether you do it in the middle or at the beginning or at the end. And someone says a few words uh, because you have to. Uh, someone says a few words, and often quoted is the passage of 1 Corinthians chapter 11. And they usually start in verse 23. They say, For I received from the Lord that which I also delivered to you, that the Lord Jesus, on the night in which he was betrayed, took bread. When he had given thanks, he broke it and said, This is my body, which is for you. Do this in remembrance of me. In the same way, he took the cup. Also, after supper, saying, This cup is the new covenant in my blood. Do this as often as you drink it in remembrance of Of me. For as often as you eat the bread and drink the cup, you proclaim the Lord's death until he comes. Therefore, whoever eats the bread or drinks the cup of the Lord in an unworthy manner shall be guilty of the body and of the blood of the Lord. But a man must examine himself, and in so doing, he is to eat of the bread and drink of the cup. Okay, we read that passage a lot. We talk about that a lot. And it's important because it is a restating of the history of this institution. It's a restating of the history of these emblems. And it's a direct instruction by Paul to say, this is how you should do it. You You need to be doing this. It is at the heart, Paul is addressing the heart of the question of why. Why is it an important part of what we do? And we focus a lot on this idea First of all, of everybody examining themselves, and I love that idea because it is not the authority of any person to say, you don't get to take it. That is each person's decision if they're going to have that kind of relationship with God and how they're going to do it. But we do read a lot about this unworthy manner, and we think about that, and we turn that over in our brains quite a bit, and we say, what does that mean to be unworthy? Well, I think that it means we have to have our mind right. We have to have our heart right to be focused on what it is we're there to do. We should be free of conflict with one another, free of conflict with other people. We should be free of hateful attitudes. We should be in a humble and open frame of mind, focused on Jesus and his sacrifice. I believe that. I agree with that. But I want to put a finer point on it this morning. And I want to go back and look at the context in which Paul is saying this. What is Paul saying is an unworthy manner? What is Paul criticizing here? In fact, his words are quite harsh in this passage in this chapter. What is it that has upset Paul so much? Well, let's back up. Go to verse 17 of 1 Corinthians chapter 11. But in giving this instruction, I do not praise you because you come together, not for the better, but for the worse. In other words, when you get together, it makes things worse. Christians should be getting together and making things better, but he says you get together and things get worse. For, in the first place, when you come together as a church, I hear that divisions exist among you. Uh Uh-oh. Divisions exist among you, and in part I believe it. For there must also be factions among you, so that those who are approved may become evident among you. Therefore, when you meet together, it is not to eat the Lord's Supper, For in your eating, each one takes his own supper first, and one is hungry and another is drunk. What? Do you not have houses in which to eat and drink? What Paul is saying here is, you guys are so divided, and you're just trying to show one another who's better. You're more concerned with being better than one another than than in being one with another. You're, You're constantly playing this game of trying to see who's on top. Who's the most approved? You've split and develop factions because you want to show your way of thinking as being approved and others as disapproved and he says this is carried over into your observance of the Lord's supper because when you get together you get yours you sit down and you you're you're taking all the bread you're taking all the wine some people aren't getting any you're treating it like a like a like like your dinner instead of like an emblem of remembrance they're having, Paul says, essentially, you're having a potluck. You're not having the Lord's Supper. You're having a potluck, and you're taking it, and other people are getting left out. If you want to eat, go home and eat. Don't do it with the body. Don't do it with other Christians. Don't leave people out. He says, or do you despise the church of God and shame those who have nothing? What shall I say to you? Shall I praise you? In this, I will not praise you. And then he gives the description of the institution of the Lord's Supper. When we read chapter 11, verse 23 at the Lord's Supper, when we're doing that little uh, devotional thought before we partake, we read that in the most pleasant tone. This is what Paul said. Oh, wonderful. Paul's given us this instruction. Paul was shouting it at them. Paul was shouting it through the written word. He says, I don't have anything good to say about you. Because you disrespect and disregard one another, and you do it in the midst of partaking of a sacred emblem that was meant to proclaim to the world that Jesus Christ is the Son of God and that he died for your sin, and you're making a meal out of it. You're making a social event out of it, and you're disrespecting it, and you're leaving people out. You're dividing the brotherhood on on this basis, and if you're hungry, go home and eat. But don't bring it into God's house. And I don't mean a church building. I mean in the gathering of Christians. He says don't bring that attitude in here. When we talk about partaking in an unworthy manner, sometimes we might think about what our relationships are with other people. We might think about how we've been living or behaving or if we're righteous enough to partake of it. Those questions are often asked, and we have to leave it where the Bible leaves it, that each one must judge for themselves the manner in which they'll partake of this. In our church, we choose to do it every week, and we choose to leave it open to each person to decide, but you do have to decide if you are worthy. And sometimes we oversimplify what worthy means, and in oversimplifying it, we overcomplicate it, because... What makes someone worthy isn't always how they're living or how they're feeling. Sometimes what makes you worthy is as simple as the fact that Paul points out. You're being selfish. A self-centeredness, an attitude of trying to demonstrate why they were better than one another. That was what was getting in the way of them partaking of the Lord's Supper in a worthy manner. So, just as throughout history we have sought to unify things and in our efforts, become more divided, we run that risk with the Lord's Supper as well. This is one of the most special and important things we do. I, I, I put it in, on, in the top three things that I love about the churches of Christ, is the how we do the Lord's Supper. But we also must be careful. We must be careful to hold fast to this tradition, to maintain the importance of regular partaking, to maintain the importance of openness, of allowing each person to decide for themselves what their relationship with God is. And we must also maintain attitudes with one another that support worthiness of partaking, not selfishly, not trying to one-up one another, not trying to be better than one another, but simply in humility and in equality appreciating what we've been given through Jesus Christ. Thank you for joining us for the Monroe Church of Christ podcast. We hope that you have found today's message to be uplifting, inspirational, and encouraging. Most of all, we hope that it helps you along your spiritual journey. If you have any questions or comments or would like to drop us a line, you can do so at WiCOC at gmail.com. We look forward to hearing from you, and we look forward to you joining us next week.